All right. So but let me let me slightly counter argue on this one, and and uh, and I'll say why because I think that where we are situated currently. So, for example, you know when you when you're driving a car, sometimes you need to turn the steering wheel to the right. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you're so far over here that you need to turn it for a while or turn it to left, right? But that doesn't mean that in every case on every road, you're turning the steering wheel in that direction. You know, that is that is the correct, we may be so off course, you need to turn the steering wheel in this direction for a long period. And that is correct, but not forever. Okay. And so why, why do I say that? So I would not assign zero value to patriotism, to loyalty, to, to so on. And the thing is, and here's the problem. The problem is, if you defected from the US to the Soviet Union at that time, people would also, you're not exactly the same silted language as, uh, you know, it wouldn't sound exactly what the Soviet propaganda or East German propaganda sounded like, but they would say, um, you're a traitor, you're a commie, I can't believe you betrayed America, you know, hope you like it over there in a gulag. The difference is they'd kind of be right, you know, they'd be, they'd be right that actually you had, because uh, there were a lot of you know, foolish people who who did go and think that life in the Soviet Union was better, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's not, so while I agree that the axis of status versus non-status is often a valuable axis, okay? Mm-hmm. I am more from the Lee Kuan Yew school of thought, which says it is about um, emigration and, uh, and, and immigration as opposed to uh, other variables. I think that it's almost like you, if we push it up to that meta level, if people can choose and do choose to enter or exit, that is the ultimate like vote on a society. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that people that, that were dumb went from the state of the US to the USSR, it is true that they were um, they were making, making a bad decision, but it's also true in a sense that they were disloyal. And let me explain this for a second, right? Mm-hmm. Basically, at least, and, and robots will change this, okay? But at least to protect property today, in today's environment, you do need police and military. And those guys are risking their lives and are not paid that well. So they need to have something higher than themselves that they believe in. In the past, that was like the church. And today it is the state. And, you know, I'm a patriot and I salute that flag and, you know, so on and so forth, Right. Yeah. And if you don't have that, what you get is the guys who are pure uh, muscle for hire, which is like Blackwater or Academy. Mercenaries, yeah. Mercenaries. Yeah. And then what you start to get is like a meta-rational issue where the price of security becomes so expensive and these guys can flip on you mm. and the other guy can pay them more. And now you're taking, they're taking all your stuff because the law just changed. Guess what? Because you can't enforce the law. This is the kind of stuff that people will sometimes... Uh, make fun of libertarians for not thinking through or what have you, right? Uh, but uh, I'm 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 not saying we're close to that today, but I actually think we will be there in five or ten or fifteen years at the current rate we're going, because the the combination of what the current establishment is doing—they're abolishing. You know, when when the police have been abolished and the military is defeated, it's all decentralized defense. Yeah. And that, you know, that, I know that sounds provocative, right? But that is like the guy at Walgreens that, that I tweeted about recently. Um, he has to solve the thefts himself because the police won't do it. Mm-hmm. 
right? Yeah. Those Afghans, you know, they need to defend themselves. Maybe they should always be defending themselves, but they couldn't get on the plane. Now they have to defend themselves against the Taliban. They're going to fight the civil war for themselves, right? Mm -hmm. So, but those things start to converge until you have towns and cities, I think in the US where, um, maybe not cities, but that retreat that happens first happens from abroad. And then eventually, I think you're, you're going to see American disunion in, in a 10 to 20 year time frame. Mm -hmm. um, maybe I can talk about that scenario because that kind of leads into our other stuff. Like actually, yeah. this is back to the beginning with the military. Yeah, we do have that on the docket. So I, I just want to drill into this a bit because it's an interesting topic. So in your view, then patriotism almost subsidizes the cost of communized defense, which, and this yes. is where, this is where I think it's a, a critical distinction. I think we're evolved for it also. Yeah. You know, national defense, I mean, that itself is a communistic model, right? We're all paying for it. We're all sharing it. We're all enjoying the benefits of it. So it seems to me like that's one industry that we've, ne we have never had a true libertarian experiment in, you know, we've never disbanded the national military and scene. We have, we have, we, we didn't, the U S did, did not used to have a standing military. So it was, it was a civil war because it was defended kind of by the oceans and, and so on. Right. Okay. Go ahead. Uh, well, I'm just, my thought there is that we, it has been uh, suppressive to experimentation. So it's like, I, I, I wasn't aware actually at the time um, we had tried the decentralized mode of defense. Um, well, it's so, like, you know, the, the, the original U.S. colonies is every man had a musket and, you know, there wasn't, because the thing is you didn't have mechanized warfare, right? Yeah. You didn't have tanks. Yeah. You didn't have right. planes, you didn't have machine guns. And so, so, yeah, go ahead. So there's a bit, there's been a big asymmetry of warfare as a result of mechanization or industrialization, but now aren't we kind of going back the other direction where yes. the asymmetry is being reduced again? So you would assume, you know, with 3D printing of guns and anti-aircraft drones or whatever, this, this asymmetry of combat uh, is getting reduced again. So what, yes, but this is going to, I mean, it's going to happen fast. But this yeah. is what this century is about. I think a huge part of it. So yeah. here is kind of like my my compact mental model of you know the near future. This is a scenario. Um, I, I don't put a hundred percent confidence in it, but let's call this my base case for what happens. Okay. Yeah. So so forces in the world that I see right now are um, NYT, CCP, BTC. Okay, mm -hmm. respectively, woke capital, communist capital, crypto capital. And just starting with the Chinese, so the, the, the Chinese point on the triangle for a second, um, with, with communist capital, they say you must submit, mm -hmm. um, meaning the Chinese party is dominant. You've got to submit to them. With woke capital, they say you must sympathize. And so here you must bow your head because you're white, because you're male, because you're straight, because you're cis. In theory, see, the Chinese are saying to bow your head because they're powerful because the Chinese state is powerful, because the CCP is powerful. The Wokes are saying to bow your head because you're powerful, but it ends up in the same place, which is eyes downcast, give all your money, right? An ideology of submission, right? right? This is just the left-handed version, slightly more subtle version, but it's, it's the same thing. And then you get um, crypto capital. And uh, crypto capital, is, you know, BTC is you must be sovereign. So it's distinct from the other two poles, which are you must submit, you must sympathize. This is you must be sovereign. Mm -hmm. And you must be sovereign says, hold your head up high. 
do everything yourself uh, as much as you can. Not just hold your private keys, but you know, like run your own node and uh, but but grow your own food and hold your own gun and have your own education and homeschool your kids and do everything because you're neither submitting to the state nor buying into the woke language sympathy. Okay. So these are three points on the triangle, but the thing is that the exact opposite of them, I argue, is actually also bad. Even though each of these three things are like, like powerful points, I don't think uh, either full submission or full lack of submission is good. Full submission is the CCP. Full lack of it is um, you know people going into Walgreens in San Francisco and being able to steal nine hundred dollars on command. You know that is that is like zero state, right? Full sympathy leads you to you know the woke craziness of um, you know this this lawsuit of like one hundred thirty seven million dollars Tesla. I mean that's that's just like stupid stupid money for 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 frankly you know nothing, right? Mm -hmm. um, this is other people. If you read the details of the suit, it doesn't seem legitimate. Um, so, so that gets you over here, where ultimately that means nobody can do any business because everybody's constantly complaining, faking being a victim. It's much easier to fake being a, a loser than to fake being a winner, to fake mm -hmm. being a victim than than, than a champion. Um, then the other extreme of that is also something you don't want. That's like Russia in the 90s, because communism had bleached all of the sympathy out of everybody. Every single appeal to collective sacrifice, shared anything. Right. They were all so cynical about all of that that is a Grand Theft Auto like society, Russia in the 90s. You know, and people who live there will, will tell you that, mm -hmm. uh, like the mafia type state. And so you don't want the total absence of sympathy either. And then finally, sovereignty. Look, obviously, I'm sympathetic to sovereignty. I've been a very early um, you know, Bitcoin promoting. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know this, but like, you know, I taught a class in 2013 with 200, got 250,000 people into Bitcoin and we helped, um, you know, we, we set up coin center with Alex Morcos as a core dev in 2014. I was co-founder of that and, you know, blah, blah, blah. There's like 50 things that I've done for that. Um, not, not to brag, just saying very early supporter and obviously believe in mm -hmm. Bitcoin, but, uh, I recognize also that practically not everybody can be completely sovereign. Not everybody's a computer scientist. Mm -hmm. I can read the cryptography code but I cannot expect everybody else to go and do that. Um, I can download and build, you know, source. I can look at Wireshark or Lil Snitch and look at packets going out. And I can, but it's not realistic for me to ask everybody to do that. Mm. Uh, and yeah, then you might say, well, people can hold their private keys. Okay, sure. But how many people bought their Bitcoin through a fiat to Bitcoin exchange? It's mm. probably 99% if not more, you know, do they, like how do they do it through mining or local Bitcoins? More power to them, like a cash exchange. I'm sure that's possible, but they probably did it for cash. They probably use fiat. There's some compromise they made, right? Yeah, yeah. And they were not quote, completely sovereign because being quote, completely sovereign would mean you're not just holding your own Bitcoin, you're growing your own food and your own water. And it might sound like a caricature, but it's not because, I mean, uh, you know, there's many times and places in history, and we're seeing all the supply chain shocks now, where you cannot take that for granted, that there aren't lots of vendors who will get you chips or, you know, this good or that good, and who do have you, you know, by, by the throat on, on that particular good. So being completely sovereign means you're building all of this stuff. Um, the complete lack of sovereignty means you're vulnerable to these supply chain disruptions, but you also can't build them all yourself. So somewhere in the middle. So, so you put that together. Go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. You're going to finish the point. Um, I just yep. want to. So, I, I just want to go into that whenever. Sorry to interrupt. Fine, fine. Sovereignty versus self-sufficiency, because I think there might be some disconnect on our definitions of these. 
Okay, sure. Yeah. So um, for me, sovereignty means nobody can veto you. Mm -hmm. So sovereignty is basically like the number of people who can veto you. Now, the thing is, um, and, and it's continuous, right? Mm -hmm. Because no one is going to be able to veto you on like you could you could have like a table of actions and then like how many people can veto you on that right like moving a chair across your room nobody cares you have root access to that okay mm -hmm. but building a shed outside tons of people will be able to veto you on that mm -hmm. right um you cannot go and opt in with your neighbor today to go and do a duel you can, if it's like an MMA fight, like highly ritualized, there's all these waivers and stuff, you know, like boxing matches are legal. So there's some like residual aspect of that, but you can't just consent to go and knock somebody out or not, not easily. Um, and you start going through a list of actions versus how many people need to consent to it. And some of them like, you know, are like, as I said, the shed thing, things in the physical world have lots of people who need to sign off. It's insane. Getting an ice cream parlor going in San Francisco, for example, is an incredible bureaucratic maze, right? Um, and not that profitable either, you know? Okay. Mm -hmm. This is a guy who spent 200000 on ice cream parlor. He should just put it into Bitcoin. Poor guy. You know, <laughs> he learned what it was, you know, to try to build something in the physical world in, in 2020s America. Mm. Um, so, so that's what sovereignty means, in my view, is how many people can veto you on what action? So my modification to that would be, you know, in a free market, as Misa says, consumers are sovereign, which in my mind, I would define as the, the ability to act as one sees fit. So uncoerced. So we'd say the ultimate, hmm. you know, if 100% taxation is a slave, 0% taxation is a sovereign, effectively. It does not incur any taxation whatsoever or coercion. You could put vetoes in there as well. So in my mind, a free market of sovereign actors mitigates that risk, that single point of failure that you're identifying, or how many people can, can veto you. Because if you get vetoed by a producer, whether it's of sheds or any other good or service, you now can, you have recourse to their competitors to go and, um, you know, seek procurement elsewhere. Right. Okay. So a couple of things about that. One is that does presume that there is some enforcer of property rights, you know, who's there like a police yes, force or a state. Yes. yes. So this is where I, right. th and this is a great question because I'm like, what happens post Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin's the one property you don't need the enforcer of. So what do we do for the physical property? Um, and we were or it changes. It, it, we were touching on this you, earlier you, with decentralization of defense. Right, uh, and this is kind of sovereign individual thesis as well. It seems like we might, on the the spectrum of uh, security centralization or or governance, we'd slide back towards the monarchy model, like away from the centralized nation state towards a more decentralized monarchy model. Yes. So so well, okay, right. So basically, I think that's only partially the case now, and let me explain why I think that. Um, so. In the same way, the U.S. has changed a lot over the last seven or eight years. You know, it was just a different country in 2012 prior to what Matt Iglesias calls the Great Awakening. You know, like the Great Awakening. Do you know what the Great Awakening is? Uh, I've heard of the Great Awakening taking place. It yeah, was supposed every, to be this transformation in consciousness, right? But it became wokeism. Yeah, well, well, so, right. So, basically, you know, this is something where there have been Christian revivals at different times and places in American history, right? Mm -hmm. Those are called like great awakenings. You know, everyone's like, yeah, you know, and um, the thing, 
about it is, you know, religious fundamentalism isn't always pretty. Mm -hmm. And the form that it's taken in the present day is the great awakening, mm. which is a very clever term, right? Because wokeness is, you know, as Tom Holland, he's got a book called Dominion, mm -hmm. um, goes through the history of all these movements as, you know, how they have their roots in Christianity. Wokeness is basically, you know, an Abrahamic offshoot, just like communism is, you know, mm -hmm. um, that is to say, like, you know, the uh, Winston Churchill had the saying, communism is Christianity with a tomahawk. And um, the the reason for that is it's it's about like total equality and it's militant, like the, you know, I think we've talked about this, but Christianity was in some ways like the original communism it, it, and it tore down the Roman empire, you know, a rich man would sooner go through the eye of a needle than get to heaven, that type of stuff, right? It was basically a religion that, you know, allowed slaves to, to, to feel that, you know, they were being oppressed and the Romans were evil with some justification and it tore it down. And by the end of the Roman empire, they were, apologizing for their previous lack of Christianity, much as COs today apologize for their previous lack of diversity. The, mm. the fundamental um, basis of what they had done, they were now guilty about. The old gods were no longer something that everybody had faith in. And then the whole thing fell apart because it just didn't have that motive force anymore. Then after a lot of bubbling and trouble, after you know the dark age and so on, you had this Germanization of Christianity where um, memes that were just totally distinct started getting fused together. Like St. Nicholas, if you think about it, that's, you know, Santa Claus and snow is thought of at Christmas time next to the scene from, you know, the manger in Bethlehem and the desert. So how is this scene from like the snowy tundra or whatever being fused with a desert scene? And the answer is, because it's two different folk cultures that came together. Hmm. Okay. It is really just two totally different things that are fused hmm. and Santa Claus and Jesus have basically nothing to do with each other. They're just two different traditions that have come into the, the same thing. And we replicate them next to each other without thinking about it. It's like in, you know, in, in biology, there's so-called horizontal gene transfer, for example, yes, between yes. bacteria where, yeah. You know, you can just copy and paste some DNA, splat it in there and just kind of go, go with it. Right. Yeah. Um, it's peanut butter and jelly. Right. That's, that's and, interesting. Are they the horizontal gene transfer? Because that's, that's how mycelium, they have a very adaptive response to their environment because they, they slurp up their competitors, genetic material. Right. And so you're kind of describing this. Collision. Actually, I don't know the biology. I don't know the biology of mycelium, but go tell, tell me more. Uh, well, they just if if you know a mycelial mat is it's kind of like nature's internet is the rough analogy. It lives underground. The mushrooms are just the sex organs that, that pop up every now and now and then. But the mycelium is a large subterranean organism, and if it encounters a threat at any one point, uh, you know whatever a, a bacteria or a microbe or some some kind, it will um, adapt a way to neutralize that threat and then pass the message out into the rest of the mycelium so that if it encounters the threat anywhere else, it can overcome it. So it has this or has a horizontal gene transfer is the, the gist of it. Hey everybody, as you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. 
One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yen Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider Nidig your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. Interesting. The way you're describing this collision of cultural systems, there's a similar horizontal gene transfer between the two. Yes. And, and here's the thing about it is what, what happened is eventually after the Dark Ages, um, the Holy Roman Empire arose. And, you know, you can see it kind of like, at least in the name, it's a fusion between Christianity and the Roman Empire. And you started to get this previously oxymoronic concept, a Christian king, right? Mm -hmm. That was, you know, that was like this totally oxymoronic concept. Mm -hmm. um, and what happened was essentially the words and the optics were replicated, but the substance was hollowed out. So it's sort of like the mm -hmm. ideology propagated, but in a non-virulent form, like an mm -hmm. attenuated virus, mm -hmm. right? And that's actually, I think, a good analogy where um, it's no longer tearing down the empire in the same way. And then, you know, you had later, uh, you had obviously Protestant, I mean, we're skipping forward like hundreds of years, but you had Protestantism, which, um, you know, Martin Luther went and did something similar to what Christianity did to the Roman empire, where he said, hey, the Catholic church is corrupt. Um, it's selling indulgences. We need to revolt against it. And so that was, that became essentially another uh, like communistic, you know, you, you could call it communist, you could call it uh, revolutionary ideology that justified individual overthrow of uh, the centralized church. And that led to these, you know, really bloody religious wars of, of Europe and, and, you know, actually the modern piece of Westphalia. And then what happened was those Protestants, just like the Christians, you know, who tore down the Roman empire, eventually fused and became, uh, you know, an empire themselves, right? The Holy Roman, and that's like over hundreds of years. It was not an immediate thing. Those Protestants, well, guess what happened to some of them? Their descendants eventually became the WASP establishment of the United States hmm. and ran their own empire, hmm. right? So there's like that cycle that hmm. we start to see. There's more examples of this. You know, another example is um, you know, the uh, communism, right? Like, so communism itself was, you know, this, I mean, incredibly viral religious-like ideology. Why religious? It, 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 got, it, it was a fervor of religion, mm -hmm. you know? Basically, uh, it spread from a book in the 1800s to cover like half the earth's surface. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody from, you know, Chinese people, Russian people, African people, American mm -hmm. people, India, it appealed to a lot of people around the world. It grew mm -hmm. really fast. You know, it was a universal religion that anybody could adopt. And um, it was new. And so what happened with communism is interesting where uh, over time, 
it merged with, it started out as being implacably opposed to religion, nationalism, all of those things were considered relics of the past. We we're going to have the international communist revolution where states don't matter. Religion is the opium of the masses, all the types of the Trotsky is mm -hmm. like burn it all down, you know, destroy everything, rob everybody. Basically, mm -hmm. you know, Trotsky commanded the red army, by the way, like, you know, lots of people are like, Oh, Trotsky was good. And Lenin was bad. Like mm -hmm. there's a good essay called uh, Lenin think by I think Gary Morse mm. um, and uh, Gary Saul Morrison. Lenin. And basically just about how like Lenin was like a ruthless killer. There's another good book called Trotsky in New York by uh, Kenneth Ackerman, which kind of shows how they finance the Russian revolution. Read that alongside. Um, and there's an NYT article called was Lenin a German agent um, unusually for the NYT. Uh, you know, they actually printed something interesting. Um, there's also another book on this if people are interested by Sean McMeekin, um, A New History of the Russian Revolution. Uh, and he basically says that the reason it happened was because of um, the Russian civil, uh, the, uh, Russia's involvement in World War I, which sets the conditions for the communist revolution. But coming up, so the what happened was uh, communists obviously in Russia fused with Russian nationalism because Stalin found that people didn't want to die for communism, but they would fight for mother Russia. Mm -hmm. So it became socialist nationalism versus the German nationalist socialism. Right. And then many years later, uh, so that's an example of sort of replicating the hammer and sickle, you know, while making it more nationalistic and it's kind of a fusion with elements that are previously rejected. But the most important version is probably, at least today, the, the modern version is the Chinese Communist Party, mm -hmm. which is very much a nationalist party. It has fused um, traditional, like for, for a time under Mao, under Chinese communism, it was all about destroying all the olds, you know, destroy the four olds, smash old temples, smash old statues. Your parents are evil. You know, filial piety was a huge part of Chinese culture for many years. So these, this is a total inversion of what Chinese culture was. Mm -hmm. And then what happened was Deng Xiaoping basically in 78, I mean, he took over China. He's like, you know what? We can mutter some stuff about this is communist, that is communist. We recognize that communism contains within itself all these contradictions. You can quote communist scripture to justify X and not X for any value of X. Okay. Um, both that, you know, oh, of course, war is terrible. You know, we're against the imperialists and one must kill to defend the motherland, you know, right. that kind of, or not to defend, to defend uh, against the, the imperialists and the capitalists, right? Mm -hmm. So he recognized that. And so he basically was able to come up with verbal arguments in Chinese to justify anything as being communist, okay? And because of that, they were able to essentially fuse communism with capitalism and nationalism such that you can have stirring patriotic anthems that celebrate traditional Chinese culture next to a gigantic hammer and sickle. So that's like the Christian king. It's like the communist nationalist. Right. You know? Go ahead. Uh, no, I just wanted to throw this inquiry oh, so, in there. Is so that's also, by the way, woke, woke capital is also like that, by the way. Woke capital is a fusion of this revolutionary ideology, tear it all down with huge swaths of money. Right? <laughs> right. So, right. so you see yeah. the Christian king, the communist nationalist, woke capital, these are things where you've kind of got the priest and the warrior or the merchant, some form of power over here. And it is like a left-right fusion. The contradictions that ultimately destroy them too, right? 
Sometimes, but but sometimes it's a very stable state because basically the left provides the moral justification and the right provides the power. Mm. Right. So go ahead. So what okay, my question is what is the common denominator when these institutions are overthrown? Because it appears to me that when there is some severance to the to accountability to the preferences of the constituents, right? Like when Martin Luther nails the 95 theses, it's because uh, the constituents of the church are being economically victimized, taken advantage of, et cetera, et cetera, right? um, Their preferences either aren't being reflected in the hierarchy or perhaps the hierarchy has lost relevance due to technological change. So it's a few things. Yes, it's basically something where, um, all right, so let's just talk explicit left, right for just a little bit. Okay. Mm. So one way of thinking about things is if you take all 7 billion people in the world and you, you have some ordering metric. Okay. For example, how like German Aryan are they, or how close are they to the powers of the U S government, like the levers of the U S government, or um, how much, how many U S dollars do they have, or how much Bitcoin do they have, or how good at programming are they, or how Han Chinese are they? Okay. These are all like, ways that you could in theory order the world. Mm-hmm. And one way of thinking about it is for each such ordering, there's a cut point and a right-wing ideology would define itself as all the people who are within this group. And um, because you're within this group uh, on this ordering, you're in like the top uh, like, like part of it. Um, you have an esprit de corps, you have a sense of belonging, you have a sense of purpose, you're the elect. There's a, there's a whole narrative that justifies why you're the best because you, you know, you're, you're, you're like on top of this particular ranking. Okay. Mm. And so it's, it's exclusive. Now in some, some ways that can be good because it's like a small, you know, group of, you know, a band that does really great things together. And of course it can be bad if it, if it turns into the, the failure mode, which is, kill or oppress all the people outside the group. Okay. But the opposite of that is a left-wing ideology, which um, takes a large set. Okay. And that is as inclusive as possible. And it does the same axis, but it might be, for example, the 1% and the 99%, Mm -hmm. right? Or it might be, um, you know, the, the capitalists and the workers, or it might be the oppressors and the oppressed, okay? And their framing is always, okay, we're going to build the largest possible group and include all these people against these evil guys. Problem is, the failure mood of that is to be so inclusive that you are, um, you know, cheek by jowl. What's that? Equality of outcome. Equality of outcome, yes, exactly. But it's also like you are in a Soviet gulag, you know, slaving away with a, you know, career criminal next to you has happened to many people in the USSR. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, you're equal, but you've been, everybody's right. equally bad. You yes, know? yes, you're, yes. Yeah. Well, I'm reminded, e- there's some quote that we're all equal in the grave. Um, yeah, exactly. Like yeah. What, it, what it results in, because you're, you're trying to make things equal that are, are not, you know? Right. And um, so, you know, the, this, this random civilian is not the same as some like criminal who's tapping. There's actually a good movie called The Way Back, which is, I think it's got like Colin Farrell in it actually. Mm-hmm. It's an unusual depiction of the gulag on the big screen. 
Mm. Okay. So you actually kind of get a visual of what the thing was like uh, with political prisoners alongside criminal criminals, you know? Mm. So this guy was convicted for making a joke about Stalin. This guy was convicted for stabbing and they're like, <laughs> you know, in the same bunk or whatever. Right. So that's, that's kind of when you, when you level it all out and when you make all these verbal arguments of, well, who's the true criminal, the true criminal is, you know, the one who is trying to, um, you know, restore capitalism and restore oppression. And so his comments against comrade Stalin, clearly he wants to restore the imperialist capitalist running dogs to so throw him in jail. But this guy, his stabbing is because he had a bad childhood and a bad upbringing. So let's like bring that, you know, imprisonment down. And so, mm. and so to kind of level out to the same thing, right? Yeah. So that's a failure mode of that kind of ideology. And the thing is that, you know, from a true like real politics standpoint, the ideologies that are successful are those that have like the sort of integral of like scale, like number of people and like strength, you know, like the strength of those folks. And, you know, one of the reasons that, uh, you know, the Nazis lost was fundamentally that they were outnumbered by the USSR and the UK and, you know, the US, um, you know, like had Hitler not thought that Slavs were inferior, you know, maybe, you know, like he might've had like slightly more demographics. I don't know. Right. Mm -hmm. Or like, like he might've been, you know, mm -hmm. might've had a bigger coalition. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that was pretty stupid. Uh, I mean, the whole thing was stupid, but that was particularly stupid. Oh. And, you know, by contrast had the, um, you know, what would happen with the, uh, with, with the, uh, the Soviets is their best people didn't feel like they were distinguished enough. So they wanted to leave. And so they, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they absconded, um, you know, they defected uh, and they complained and eventually they brought down the regime. Right. right. Um, so go ahead. So there's clearly the hierarchy is advantageous to the collective insofar as those that are the most competent inhabit the highest echelons of that hierarchy. But the hierarchy also needs to be adaptive, right? There needs to be mobility. As in, if you're not doing right. a good job at the top, there needs to be downward mobility. If you're doing a great job at the bottom, there needs to be upward mobility. If, if it ossifies if you have, at any point, or if you try to do away with the hierarchy, as communism does, it's it's a it's a bad bet. <laughs> that's right. And so, if you have a large group of people or a smart group of people, capable group of people who are outside the current hierarchy. Mm -hmm. but rising really fast and the current hierarchy doesn't accommodate them, it's not long for this world or you're going to have serious conflict. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so the, there's like an obvious version of that, which is um, China, us, mm -hmm. right. And that people can see because it's state to state, uh, a less obvious version, but it's also there is certainly tech versus the East coast establishment. And that's now something which is interesting where it's kind of been a boxer's clinch where it was a fight, then it's clinch and now it's broken up into like centralized tech and media versus decentralized tech and media. Mm. Like decentralized tech and media, we've gotten Glenn Greenwald and Matt Taibbi and all the people at Substack and, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, centralized media has captured big chunks of centralized tech and they've got a lot of censorship and so on. So we've got a lot of the talent and innovation and the writing and mm -hmm. they have a lot of the establishment. So it's an interesting swap that basically mm -hmm. happened over the last couple of years. Okay. But for a while it was basically East coast versus West coast. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I think in some ways there's, there's more that is compounding out there, um, which is 
I think it'll be more apparent by 2030 than 2020, which is um, India and uh, all the folks who've just gone online. Mm-hmm. Like China's been compounding for a while, but mm-hmm. that's another group that is kind of being mostly out of the game that is getting in the game. And some people are really good at math and computer science and finance mm-hmm. and stuff. And so hierarchies are going to flex to accommodate them as well, you know? Um, gotcha. But it might be less adversarial than like the Chinese confrontation. And, you know, so we'll see what happens with that. But the um, it'll likely be much less adversarial than that, but but basically it will be a change to hierarchies. The Coming back up to the like the the triangle right yeah. of because um, this is kind of the macro model of uh, communist capital woke capital crypto capital right NYT CCP BTC see um, the reason I think this is a, a good way of thinking about things first is it's kind of it represents like you know three ideological points I think it also says for the reasons I went into why we want to kind of make what I call the decentralized center. Mm-hmm. Where it's a balance between sympathy, sovereignty, and and uh, and submission. Mm-hmm. You, you know, I'm not saying there's one ideal point there, but I do think there should be a trade-off. Mm-hmm. Like you're, you're, you've got some. It's like things on a slider. You can imagine what different societies look like. Mm-hmm. You know, within that set, but it's not like pushed to one of the extremes without the other two because I think that's uh, that's where the reason is. Those poles are going to try to pull people to the extremes and say the other two are evil. Mm-hmm. China bans Bitcoin. China also cracked down on Hong Kong and you know, on, on um, you know, the Great Firewall. So they're against both of these two. Obviously, Bitcoiners have <laughs> maximums of sympathy for NYT or CCP. Mm-hmm. And NYT is not exactly big Bitcoin holders or mm-hmm. believers in, you know, so, so all, yeah. each corner does not like the other two, right? Yeah. And um, now, of these, I think NYT, and the reason I say NYT, by the way, as opposed to the U.S. government, is NYT is upstream of all media and the U.S. government. Why? Um, because uh, just to talk about this for a second, uh, a, a book that I recommend everybody get just to kind of dispense with any mental bottlenecks or whatever is, is The Great Lady Winked by Ashley Rinsberg. And this basically goes through and it shows that it's not like the New York Times like just got bad. And was in the past truthful. It's actually something that has been lying uh, for for generations. You know, for example, one story that people often know is that they printed that um, you know the the famine in the Ukraine was not really happening, and the guy who did it, Walter Duranty, was like big with the communists and um, won a Pulitzer for it. And the New York Times still has the Pulitzer. They refused to return the Pulitzer. So literally won a Pulitzer Prize for denying a genocide of 5 million mm-hmm. people. Um, that's just like one of the most egregious examples, but there's so many more. Uh, Herbert Matthews, their correspondent, um, basically when Castro was on the run and people thought they had defeated the terrorist movement that eventually took over Cuba and turned it into a communist hellhole, mm-hmm. um, he went and put a microphone to him and wrote this whole hagiographical thing in, in the New York Times um, that that basically whitewashed the communism and it, was, and, it, and it made Castro out to be ambiguous in terms of his ideology. And this was sort of like, uh, you know, Osama bin Laden being defeated. Everybody thought he was dead. And then some reporter going and doing this huge interview to get help have him recruit for Al-Qaeda. It was like at that level. Because, I mean, that's yeah. what communism was. It was like this terrorist movement that would take over states and turn them into charnel houses, mass murder. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, for many years, by the way, the 
like that's why for, for 16 years, the US government didn't recognize the Soviet Union from 1917 to 1933. That's why the, the nations of the world treated communism initially like they treated ISIS mm -hmm. as this crazy terrorist gang that had taken over Russia and sent them troops to help the Russian whites against the Russian reds. Mm -hmm. um, so, so basically the analogy to, to Osama bin Laden is actually pretty good. So basically Castro got interviewed and he used that for recruiting and he took over the country. And of course he's got the death squads and he's killing people or whatever, right? And uh, you know, so there are things like basically before World War II, they reported that Poland had invaded Germany. Um, they uh, obviously they got the Iraq war, you know, they reported that WMDs were in Iraq and, and fooled everybody. Their, their reporters recently were on, you know, Twitter, like denying that COVID-19 was a big deal and calling you a paranoid racist, whatever, in, in January and February 2020, if you brought it up, um, close the borders, oh my God, you're so evil. And then they turned around completely to pretending that they had always been concerned. And so the, the pattern is basically that they're the first rewrite of history, you know, mm -hmm. um, they basically go and get it wrong often because of ideological reasons or they um, they don't understand the technology. They, they told, um, if I recall correctly, Goddard, the inventor of the rocket, that it would never work, and it did. Um, and, you know, they said, they like a few months before the Wright brothers had their plane, uh, at, you know, the first the first aircraft, uh, they, they said, oh, flight will take like a million years. It'll never happen, you know? Right. So they've, they've been just wrong on lots of stuff. What they do though is they they rewrite history to airbrush their own wrongs out, but bring up all of yours. I saw They're this going back to see on your Twitter, you had retweeted an account that is calling out NYT errors and omissions, I believe. Yeah. And you're you're I mean, making the point, I think to this point, that it's that's a very important uh service because no one's ever really done that that's right i mean look you know they're doing a whole thing on 1619 but not 1933. Mm. that's to say they're going back to quote slavery but not the communist slavery that they enabled literally mm. five million people they covered it up i mean they should have the corporate death penalty for that mm -hmm. you know more than that you know what else they didn't talk about the new york post had to report this the salzberger family that controls by the way it shouldn't even really be called the New York Times or the, you know, or even the New York Times company's public trade. It should be called Salzberger's paper. It's a guy who owns it. It's just some guy. And that guy inherited from his father. Who inherited from his father? Who inherited from his father? Who inherited from his father? Who inherited from this father? So wow. it's everything they did. You didn't know that, right? I didn't know that. No. Yeah. So like it is everything they denounce and everything else. It is a rich white male nepotist. Yeah. who got his job on the base of connections, born a millionaire, who runs a paper that denounces first-generation immigrants and self-made people as, quote, rich, you know, when there's a huge distinction between born rich versus built rich, Yeah, you know, you have this nepotist and his employees running around, putting up billboards, proclaiming themselves the literal truth. Yeah, like it's so embarrassing. Like they wow. have these billboards that they put up. Like, do you, do you know this ad campaign that I'm talking about? Yeah, the truth? yeah, 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 yeah. I've right. Seen like yeah. no, you know, no founder and so that, like Elon is not arrogant. I, I love Elon, by the way, but Elon does not have a healthy enough arrogance to call himself the literal truth. Like yeah, that's pretty the, bad. 
<laughs> it's pretty ridiculous, right? Like yeah. there, there's, you know, it's, it's a, every caricature, you know, it's a concept, you know, maybe the only useful thing from Freud, which is projection, right? Mm -hmm. These guys are, are they, they're in an environment where it's all connections. It's all nepotism. How do you get rich? Because you inherited or you married somebody or you knew, you know, like they don't build anything. Mm -hmm. It's all, you know, favor trading. Mm -hmm. um, it's like, it's like, it's like a, like a Royal court. Mm -hmm. Okay. And they assume that everything else is also like that. Mm -hmm. This total projection of their mental model. Of course you were lucky to build that company because this other guy was lucky to know somebody to get a job at times when they're obviously a moron. Right. Um, and now one of the consequences of this is, you know, I had this article, you know, founding versus inheriting. The thing is that when it's like inherited many generations down, yeah. eventually you get somebody who doesn't know how to like run the factory. The competence right? goes down, right? We're kind of back to the U S government situation. Yeah. Or, or at least there's no mechanism to preserve competence. Yes. You know, like right. the selection mechanism better work, you know? Right. Um, and uh, so it was funny, by the way, is there's this whole, it, it, it's it's really useful to read these articles simply because it's so different. You know, these people are like, oh, you know, truth to power, blah, blah, blah. Like uh, the, the um, MIT article on Sulzberger taking over as New York Times publisher is like, you know, it's like Kim Jong-un taking over from um, his father, like dear leader, you know, I'm probably getting it wrong, but like mm -hmm. dear leader taking over from um, great leader. Okay. Mm -hmm. It is so completely different from how they would write about a corporate succession of anybody else other than mm -hmm. their own guys. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, the thing about this, which is really critical is uh, even this story is unusual because for the most part, it's not that the owners of these media companies get great coverage. It's that they get no coverage. Right. Okay. By design. Now look, yeah, exactly. Like, uh, you know, Zuckerberg, um, who, you know, like I respect what he did. I understand that people disagree with, you know, some of his decisions and so on. Um, but Zuckerberg is son of a dentist. Salzburg is son of a millionaire. Mm -hmm. Zuckerberg built his fortune. Salzberger inherited his. Yeah. Zuckerberg, whatever else, you, he's a self-made entrepreneur. He built mm -hmm. a $3 billion, not three, not billion, sorry, a trillion dollar, three billion person communications network from a dorm room. And yeah, he did go to Harvard, but he dropped out. And he dropped out because he was canceled basically at Harvard for doing mm -hmm. something, you know, that people didn't like at the time, the face mm -hmm. mash app. Um, and uh, but there's a lot of other people who went to Harvard who didn't build Facebook. Yeah. Thousands of people, yeah, tens yeah, of yeah. thousands, probably hundreds of thousands. I don't know exactly yeah. how many graduates, like about 4,000 years, probably only were hundreds of thousands yeah. who didn't build Facebook. And so that's merit. You know, you have to, you have to, you have to give him that. Like, you know, you may disagree yeah. with a lot of his decisions. You have to give him that as opposed to, so what's interesting though, is they will write these pieces like, Oh, Zuckerberg's children will inherit Facebook because he has dual class <laughs> stock. Okay. So I'll write these pieces. Here's, here's this example. I'm just thinking about um, dual class. And I think it was like, uh, but they won't share their own origin story. I mean, it is purposely, yes, fully obscured. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. And the, the, the reason that you and I can talk about this is that they have, um, lost their lock on distribution. They're, they're trying to 
put it back together. But here, mm-hmm. just go and Google these two articles, right? How Punch Protected the Times from 2012. And you can't fire Mark Zuckerberg's kids' kids. These two articles are amazing because they're so Russell conjugated. Mm-hmm. Like Russell conjugation is um, I sweat, you perspire, but she glows. Same thing. It just phrased differently. That's yeah. she's, she's, she glows, right? Like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. versus, you know, you're, you're sweating, right? Or, or glistens and, probably, right? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Whatever. Some, some, something yeah. which is like a positive tone glows. Oh, you know, right. We're back um, to euphemisms, right? This is the state wrapping it is, itself in euphemisms. It's euphemism and it's dysphemism mm. because your action, your normal action mm. could be the tech bros see it, mm-hmm. right? Whereas they clap back. Right. Right. It's all spin. Like, it's all spin, but it's so embedded in the language. It's an org chart in the language. And here's a great example. These two articles, if you look at them side by side, basically in one of them, they talk about how, oh, how great it was that the Salzburgers protected the times with this dual class stock. And the next one, it is seven years later. So you have to have a memory for these articles, okay? Mm-hmm. Is, um, but it's the same editors or, yeah, I mean, it may not be the exact same editor. It is the same institution. Let me put it like that. Mm-hmm. Um, Oh, Zuck is so evil for having dual class stock. So the 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 thing is, it's not dual class stock which is evil. It is good if they do it and bad if you do it. Right. That's right, it. Right. right? Yeah. I mean, another example of this. This was something where the propaganda machine kind of uh, broke down um, for them because it was like uh, you know too much. Um, they, they they screwed it up. They, they, these articles shouldn't have come out so near each other, right? Yeah. So so like. The making of a YouTube radical, June 8th, 2019, how bad YouTube is in the US, right? And mm-hmm. then looking for free speech in Russia, try YouTube, June 9th, 2019, right? And so basically, uh, when they want to control the discourse within the US, YouTube is so evil because it's yelling and screaming people. Mm-hmm. When they're against Putin, because they don't yet have control over there, YouTube is good, right? Mm-hmm. So free speech is good if it undermines their enemy and bad, if it undermines them, dual class is good if it protects them. So it's purely tribal logic where whether they're, you know, I often ask myself whether they're stupid or evil, like um, stupid would be like lying in this way without understanding it. Evil would be constantly doing it. I think they used to be evil and they're, they're moving more and more to stupid, just really believing their own stuff. And, and they're like, when these contradictions are pointed out, they don't actually have an answer for it because they've just, it's almost like, like re- repeating religious scripts where you couldn't actually even do it, you know, right. point out that it was contradicted. 